I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by our wonderful sponsors at the $10 tier and above of my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Once again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Producers, credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Dan, Brian, The Warnerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nobody, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace Belden, Galen, Justin, Nick W, Trans Natural Pod, Chance, and the Mere M E E R Project. If you'd like to join those listeners in getting your very own producer's credit, on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining them in supporting me at the $10 tier or above on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And now, on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be speaking with Greg Barrick, a criminologist who focuses on issues related to white-collar and corporate crime that has a very interesting new title out entitled Criminology on Trump, which uses the figure of the controversial former president of the United States, Donald Trump, to explore issues related to white-collar crime and the corruption of American democracy. Trust me when I say this is a conversation you won't want to miss, and if you're thinking that it'll only be about Donald Trump, well, Trump is the focus, but as Greg points out, the structural issues that Trump was able to exploit are ultimately an even bigger concern, as is the bipartisan corruption of democracy by corporate power. So, with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Greg Barrick, author of Criminology on Trump. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very, very interested to be, to be speaking with, uh, Greg Barrick, author of Criminology on Trump. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. So, Greg, if you could, uh, could you talk a little bit about your background in criminology? And also, I believe you come from a, a very sort of specific, um, a specific study of criminology. Uh, some people have called it radical criminology or a type of criminology that looks at uh, issues like white collar crime and how these uh, things tie into a, a sort of intersectional picture. Um, 
you know, that, that, that's a fair, a fair statement. Although, you know, I self-identify as a radical criminologist and have actually published a criminological memoir called Chronicles of a Radical Criminologist. Um, I have always been fundamentally uh, an integrated or integrative criminologist, which means I really look at um, uh, criminology from a slew of, of vantage points. I'm not particularly married uh, to any, 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 any school of thought. I, I try and incorporate all of them. But, but ultimately, I'm a political economist and I'm a historian. And so I do approach things uh, structurally. But I'm also concerned about the relationship with of structure and agency. So um, I, I, I started out uh, long before I came to white collar and corporate crime, um, looking at, at state crime or, or, or governmental crime. And I've always had an interest in, in, in violence and um, the criminal justice system. So I, I've spent, you know, time uh, from in, in various uh, spaces and writing about various subject matters as well, if that helps you. <laughs> well, real, real quick, I just want to delve into that, like, briefly a little bit more because I, I want to get to the book itself. But- sure. Uh, I guess when it comes to criminology, what are some uh, perspectives that maybe a lot of people haven't considered with criminology or uh, what are the ways that maybe you look at, at things uh, with that integrative approach that maybe you, you hope more people uh, take a look at, at, at issues related to crime that way, if that makes sense? Yeah, no, it does. I mean, t- typically what most criminologists do uh, and what most non-criminologists do when they attempt to explain uh, human behavior is they usually gravitate toward one particular view. It might be the notion that uh, criminals are determined. It might be the notion that criminals have uh, free choice. it may be that criminals are a product of biology, physiology. They're a product of, of politics. They're a, pro- a product of economics. They're a product of, 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 of uh, subculture. They're a product of, of community. Uh, so you know, there are uh, lots of vantage points in which uh, people look at, at crime and criminals. Uh, I tend to try and put it all together, if that makes sense. Um, so I'm not, you know, shining one one view over the other. And ultimately, I have found that that political economy allows one to incorporate uh, the other approaches. What, what do you mean by political economy? Um, just for people that may be unfamiliar with uh, the, uh, the journal. Okay. It, 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 deal, it deals with... Uh, power relationships and a political economy uh, is shaped by a mode of production. Um, So in in a capitalist uh, mode of production, you're talking about um, the the relationship of those who hold uh, state power and those who hold economic power. And it's the notion that crime and crime control varies according to the needs of the interaction of the political and the economic. Does that help? No, definitely, definitely. And I think this is a good segue into criminology on Trump because you had mentioned uh, this issue of structure and agency. And one of the first things I kind of wanted to ask you off the bat is uh, what do you think Trump comes out of in the sense of, I think there's a lot of people that would just say, oh, he's he's uh, a psychopath or he has some type of mental illness um, or, you know, there's other people that will say, oh, um, you know, he's, he's sort of born of these structures that we have in society. Uh, you know, so th- there is sort of an agency versus structure issue that comes up when some people talk about Trump. Where do you maybe stand on those issues? Um, to, to understand Trump, to understand you or myself or 
anyone else, you're going to look at the individual and his or her identity and the formation of that in the relationship with the culture and institutions of your particular time. So with respect to Donald, where people, you know, are, you know, is it, is it the culture? Is it, is it, is it the structure? Um, is it, is it uh, the individual personality? To me, um, it, it's the two coming, coming together in terms of Trump being ill mental or otherwise, yes, he, he, he's ill. But at the same time, he is a very rational actor to me. He is not deceiving himself as many people think that he's deluded. No, he's just a very fine expert at getting other people to um, believe the, the, the deception and the delusions and the lies that he for a moment does not believe. So out of curiosity, how did the book really start coming together? Like what, what was the point where you said, I need to write about Trump from a criminology, a criminological perspective? Um, different reasons. I, I mean, I mean, I started playing with Trump with, with, with another uh, friend, uh, a criminologist, David Fredericks, who uh, has a long history in, in white collar and corporate crime. And he put up um, a PowerPoint sort of summarizing Trump. And I started contributing to his PowerPoint. And we ended up writing a piece uh, for the newsletter in uh, the American Society of Criminology. So that's kind of where it was. But there's another motivation that's sort of separate from that. Um, uh, and it's about news making criminology and it's about teaching or understanding criminology through participation in narratives about crime and justice. So uh, Trump, you know, was just a perfect vehicle for that. Um, and uh, one other uh, reason behind this. As a newsmaking criminologist, I mean, to paraphrase uh, the late uh, uh, Rodney Dangerfield, you know, criminologists get no respect. For instance, we can turn on the TV, we can read the media, and everyone we're hearing from are primarily lawyers, politicos, um, maybe a historian, some political scientists, but here we are talking about crime and justice and how many people have we heard from talking about crime and justice who, who study this for a living? And the answer is not very many. For some reason, criminologists don't get the respect that I believe we should. So there were those motivations, and Trump was a, a vehicle that I thought I could monetize and news make out of and end up having a conversation with you and others. So there's a lot of areas of this book that we could cover, but one that I found really interesting, and you do it, I think, in the first chapter, if I recall, was you sort of compare Trump uh, to other notorious figures, namely uh, Bugsy Siegel and uh, John Gotti. So those are two massive organized crime figures. What, what are the sort of similarities and differences between those figures and Trump? Um, the similarities are these people are narcissistic. Uh, they're, they're egocentric. Uh, they, they tend to, to, to lack empathy. Uh, they tend to uh, bully. They tend to get other people to do things for them. Um, those are things that are, that are similar between, be, between those particular uh, uh, mobsters, if you will. And then I thought it was interesting. You start the book um, with a quote from Trump, and I, I thought it was very telling, uh, quote, I have joined the political arena so that the powerful can no longer beat up on people who cannot defend themselves. 
That's uh, Trump at the RNC nomination acceptance speech, July 2016. Was there any specific reason you choose that exact quote? Because I think it like oddly sums up Trump because, I mean, it's it's very obviously not true. It may be, you know, the, the most blatantly untrue statement he's made. Right. Well, um, I mean, I, I like you, I thought it, it captured who, who, who Trump was. Likewise, I don't think too many other people have have used that quotation. In fact, I'm not aware of anyone using that quotation. So I was motivated to do it that way. It also expresses the contradiction of Trump. Everything that Trump says or or about others is really a projection of himself. So he has been one with power, abusing the powerless. So the notion that he would no longer, that he would be the one to stop that is absurd when that's his bailiwick. Exploiting everyone powerless and powerful for that matter. Could you talk a little bit about the, the origins, I guess, of, of Donald Trump? Like what, what is the background that, that a lot of people may not know? And it, it's interesting because I think your book uh, covers territory uh, that isn't often covered. Um, you know, the the only other author I know who I think in some ways has covered Trump as sort of a criminal figure is um, David K. Johnston, who's been on this show before. I know you you have him in the Trump bibliography at the end. Oh, oh, oh sure. I mean, I, you know, I you know learned a great deal from from David and and his writings. Um, um, but. Um, it wasn't, I mean, he, he, he will, he will tell you about the business ends and he also is, is present when there are mobsters and other crooks and syndicated criminals in, 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 involved. Um, but I don't think, you know, as a, as a, not as a criminologist, but as a, you know, I mean, he's an expert on taxes and, you know, he knows this stuff, you know, inside out. Um, but, but I was really looking at the similarities and I've always been looking at the similarities of organizational crime. And when you're looking at governmental crime, political crime, syndicated or organized crime, corporate crime, these are all organizational uh, operations. And they, you know, depend on, you know, many pieces and individuals coming together. Um, and the history of Trump and his father and his um, heirs is that in the world where they were initially doing real estate, it would be pretty hard to do real estate um, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and into the present, really, without uh, the assistance of organized crime in terms of labor relations, in terms of cost of, of uh, resources, and a whole host of things. So Donald comes to it sort of naturally because his father was engaged in it for, you know, uh, decades before he was. Um and so, uh, so in a way, this is, uh, yeah, it's multi-generational. It, it, it is certainly multi-generational. The schemes that Donald has used to defraud in terms of taxes, the inflating and deflating the worth of his property when he's paying, you know, taxes and when he's going for a loan, he didn't invent that. His father was doing that throughout his career as well. So this was just a common practice. I mean, many of the things Donald does, and he often will tell you, everybody's doing it. Well, it's a sort of an exaggeration, but to a degree, it's not. People of power are doing this. I think the best example that I could give uh, in a contemporary sphere is to talk about American kleptocracy. Okay. And what we're really talking about when, when we do that, we're talking about the way in which 
the United States, and Donald was in there on the ground floor. This is after the breakup of the Soviet Union, when a lot of money was being taken out of Russia, out of the Soviet Union, and moved throughout the world. Um, some of that was done uh, illegally, i.e., you know, I mean, many parts of the story. If we back up a little bit, Donald couldn't get any loans and he never really got any, he got few loans on his own. Most of his loans were because his dad put up the, the capital uh, for the loan and was, was backing him. Um, at the point in time where he was really on his own, he had so many bankruptcies, nobody would give him the time of day. So the only bank that he could bank with, which was the world's largest money laundering bank, Deutsche Bank. I mean, they historically and in the present are the biggest laundering bank in the history of banking to our knowledge. So Donald played with them. What they do is illegal, but here in the United States and elsewhere in the world, we create shell companies, okay? And those are perfectly legal. They shouldn't be legal, but, but they are. So they allow the purchase of properties, condominiums in Donald's case, 20% of all of his condominiums uh, or about 1,300 units have been purchased through shell companies. So we don't know who the person is and we don't know who um, the, um, and we don't know about the financial tra uh, transactions behind that. We don't know what that money is or is not. The first person that Donald snagged as a, um, a kleptocrat was in 1983. Um, and, and, and that was um, baby Doc Duvalier from Haiti. Okay, that was the first person to put money into a Trump venture. Subsequently, like I said, 20% of his action is purchased through shell companies, which is really the laundering of money. But what we need to understand is, why do we allow those shell companies to persist when at this point in time, you know, we knew about Swiss, we knew about Panama, we knew about the Cayman Islands, et cetera, et cetera. What we didn't realize is the biggest shell producing uh, country in the world was the United States. What we also don't appreciate is, in other words, if a banker does it, it's not okay. But if attorneys and real estate investors and accountants put it together, it's perfectly fair. And you have to understand that elites of both Republican and Democratic parties are well represented in these shell companies. And that's what the, the, that's what all the discussions are about, going back to Manafort, Ukrainians, the Russians, Hunter Biden, the whole enchilada, you know, and if, that, if that's of use. No, it, de it definitely is. And I, I think it's an important question to ask. Why, why do we allow all these show companies to exist? And I, I guess it leads to the question of, um, and, I, I, you know, this is going a little bit away from the book, but, you know, is it, I often feel as if uh, society sort of reproduces itself and it reproduces uh, the conditions and inequities um, just, just through various means. And, you know, I feel like in that way, Trump is very much a, a, a symptom rather than the, the sickness itself. Like, I, I think we're going to have more uh, Trumps in the future and, and we have to find ways to, um, you know, stop this sort of figure from rising to power. Well, I'm not so sure that that we'll have tr Trumps in, in the future. We might have Trump wannabes. I'm not sure that those who are pitching to be the next Trump or the next Republican GOP, that they come from a background at all that is similar to that of, of, of Donald Trump. But if I can 
go back and 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 all of these things are are related even though you think i'm not talking about the book you said and you were correct when you said that we tend to reproduce ourselves the shell companies exist because they make a lot of money they help to make the world go round for the same reason that there were ten thousand fraudsters fraudsters on wall street that nearly brought down the global economy how many people did eric holder indict nobody zero nada they were all guilty but that's what makes our world go round so they get a pass so then if you could I'm also very interested in Trump's connections with um, with various figures over the years. I've always been fascinated that he was pretty friendly with a, a figure like Adnan Khashoggi, the famous arms dealer. And of course, something that you talk a little bit about in the book, which is uh, his connection to uh, Roy Cohn. Could you talk about his relationships to these sort of notorious figures and what the significance of it all is? Um, well... Okay, the, the the two examples that you give me are are, are very different, um, but but they come from you know global power and global money in terms of the former. In terms of Roy Cohn, um, you know he he played a very you know, as Trump would tell you prior to running for uh, the presidency, uh, Roy Cohn was like a second father to Donald. Okay, and much of Donald's behavior, his bullying, his uses of the law were really under the mentorship of Roy Cohn, who was sensationalistic, who was a fixer, who was corrupt. I mean, what are all of his fixers? Trump's had three attorneys. They've all been disbarred. His three criminal attorneys have all been disbarred, um, showing that, you know, they weren't particularly ethical and they knew how to use the law. Uh, so Roy really taught Donald about how to use the law. And uh, so so he, he he was a fixer in New York you know, prior to Donald coming of age, when he, you know, left uh, the McCarthy hearings and went to New York, that's where he was working all those years. And he's just, you know, was a, a very brilliant person at abusing the law. And Donald was a great student, I mean, of, of that. And he's still using that to this day when people say, how did he commit 50 years of lawlessness and never even be indicted for a single crime? That's slick. That's really working it. We're all sitting here asking ourselves, how was it that he didn't get indict indicted yet from Manhattan? And when is uh, the attorney general in New York gonna come down? Um, and why haven't these things occurred? Donald knows how to use the law to to defend himself from the law. He violates the law, but he uses the law um, quite well. I mean, and that, you know, that's what he gathered from from Roy. As far as the other people go, that's the world of business. And what I'm trying to say is Donald has relationships with these people that are not necessarily unique to him. There are other people in the world of power, political and economic, who have these similar relationships, not to the extent that he does, but um, you know, this, is, this isn't new. I mean, the difference is we always had party bosses, okay? And, and Trump is a political boss and a party boss. I mean, we had people in the past, whether we're talking about boss tweet or others, who could control maybe a city, maybe a state. Yeah, the various uh, the, the various political machines, they were called. Yeah. Right. Donald has put together a machine that now takes care of that operates in 26 states. All of those controlled by the Republican parties. 
that's a machine. I mean, he's got them lockstep. I mean, there's some fighting going on and jockeying here and there over the 160 people that he's already nominated, but he is putting his machine together. So whether he wins or loses, if he does get to does get the nomination and runs, he will steal the election next time round, short of Congress doing something to prohibit that. And it doesn't look likely, but it's not out, out altogether. And short of Attorney General Garland coming after Trump, he'll be back and he'll lose again the popular vote because we have a very undemocratic system, as you know. So I want to talk a, bit, a little bit about Attorney General Garland um, and how he sort of figures into your book. Could you uh, speak to the issue of Garland and going after Trump? Yeah, well, I mean, there, there's a history of attorney generals not going after presidents. Traditionally, that involves presidents engaging in crimes against other nations or war crimes. Nobody went after Reagan. Nobody went after Bush, too. They could have. Obama didn't go after um, those war crimes, and they didn't go after the Wall Street criminals as as, as well. Um, so, so with respect to Garland coming along, and, and think of his, uh, think of Obama's uh, Eric uh, Holder, who initially said, "We're not going to go after." Um, Trump, I'm an institutionalist. He said, I'm not going to go after Trump. And um, uh, but he's come around in the last uh, few weeks who he now thinks it's appropriate to go after him because the behavior was seditious and treasonous and all of the rest. So with Garland, you know, we're all speculating. What is he doing? I think he's slowly putting the case together myself. And as an aside, which I don't talk about in the book, but when I've come to be to think about these things from questions, questioners like yourself, um, if I was Merrick Garland and, you know, you, you know, the notion of we don't want to make it political, there's going to be backlash either way. Everything is political. So you don't we really can't escape that. But if I was Garland and I had the Supreme Court taken from me, stolen from me, and given to whomever they gave it to, and I was denied that, boy, that would be one motivation for going after those people, I think. Uh, I mean, you know, but, you know, so, I mean, Garland, you know, um, yeah, I, I, you know, what else would you like me to say? I mean, those are just some thoughts that I have about him. I mean, I think he's doing his work. I think it gets into this issue of, um, you know, I, I think there is this reticence uh, to go after Trump's criminality at times uh, by people who feel, oh, that would go against the institutional norms. Um, and I, I do think that's a, a, a problem that we face. Uh, one other thing, it was interesting since you mentioned uh, Roy Cohn being uh, involved with McCarthy. Uh, you know, it shows you how much of a slick operator is, uh, well, that Trump is, because to me, you know, Trump will go on and on about the radical lefties or are coming after me and it's it's all a witch hunt. Uh, but you know, he learned from one of the guys who is the ultimate witch hunter of the of the 20th century, you know, Roy Cohn and and, and uh, Cohn's association with McCarthy, I think, show that. Uh, and I'm just wondering, what do you think about Trump as sort of an operator that's able to, I, I would say, manipulate the narrative and sort of manipulate the media, have them eating out of the palm of his hands? Uh, how does that really work? Why is he able to do that? Um, uh, there's, there's, you know, why he succeeds with the media and why he succeeds with the base and why he has ultimately succeeded uh, even with the Republicans. I mean, it's, it's complicated because the Republican leadership, not just the Republican base and how he succeeded with the media. Um, 
he, he he's he's put those things together because he's sort of outrageous and he says outrageous things uh and he and he and he lies straight at you um he he's real, real for quick me. Real, yeah sure. i just wanted to add to that since you, he is sort of this outrageous figure and it's interesting because since we had mentioned the whole bugsy siegel and, and john Gotti thing uh you know it's funny trump does get compared to mobsters a lot even even with uh before uh i was reading this book i was thinking about how uh you know he gets called the teflon don or people right. would just refer to him as the donald like he's some kind of crime boss and he in a way i think that trump almost leans into that image as he wants to be seen as sort of this outrageous sort of badass that says what he wants um well, and it seems oh, like that's part of it yeah he, he totally leans into it he's never he's never really moved away from it i mean he had a hesitation of taking on the apprentice because he didn't want people he didn't want um his program being taped in his offices with mobsters running in and out of his office every five minutes another thing that he once said that i that i quote somewhere and i'm not sure if i quoted it in the book or not but he he once said what he would never say publicly, but he would say privately, and he certainly would say to a room full of large donors, um, my, um, winners team up with mobsters, losers don't. Trump thinks that he's a winner. He thinks that mobsters are a winner. And for the most part, they are for a long time, but no one has been a mobster as long as Donald. And he's so slick that we're not sure he's even a mobster. Am I crazy for calling him the racketeer in chief? No more so than I call him the Houdini of white collar crime. He's, he's many things. So, so getting back to that issue, what do you think it is that allows him to sort of um, play different sides? I mean, how does he win the base? How does he win the leadership? How does he, uh, you know, get the media eating out of his hands? What, how does that all work? All right. Trump's, populist appeal we always talk about his populist appeal to the base and the deplorables but we don't talk about his popular appeal to elite republicans um what is going on here um his his appeal functions as a primordial fantasy of wholeness in which the world of MAGA exists free from the threats of globalists, feminists, Black Lives Matter activists, political wokeness, and so on. In other words, Trump succeeds with forever Trumpers because he's an agent of obscene, transgressive enjoyment, whether he's vilifying immigrants, denigrating women or trying to humiliate his disloyal followers in psychoanalytic terms donald's success needs to be understood as the politics of antagonism and enjoyment people love an outlaw jesse james billy the kid Anybody who, you know, we, we, we get off on that. We enjoy that. It's like Obama said when OJ was convicted or, or acquitted, we all enjoyed that. You know, we all got, you know, took, you know, you know and, and Donald Trump is a similar figure. When he gets away with all these things, it works to his story that he's being persecuted. It just builds it up. So every day his case gets stronger that he's being persecuted. And at the same time, he snubs his nose at everyone and everything. And people enjoy that. So that, that leads to an interesting question. Uh, she mentioned the sort of Trump as outlaw sort of figure. Uh, do you think Trump is an outsider or is he an insider playing an outsider? What, what's going on there? Because I feel like, you know, he, he's not someone that has done poorly for himself necessarily. No, no. Well, I mean, he, he you know, I, I say it somewhere. I mean, among outlaws, I mean, he, he, he's certainly an outlaw in conventional society. And among outlaws, 
he's even an outlaw because he has no scruples. You know, he has no ethics among thieves, as they say. Um, so he's sort of unique in that way. Um, but again, uh, what what is different is most of these organized criminals, they came from nothing and they built legitimate businesses off of illegitimate businesses. Trump came from profound wealth and it was a management company. It was a legitimate company, but it was a legitimate company that, that did illegal things, i.e. they ran a criminal enterprise through their legitimate business. Um, and so you're doing, you're engaging in lawful things and unlawful things at the same time. But he had such a great front. I mean, it's it, that we would have never gone after this man had he not run for president. He got away with it. He's still getting away with it. But we're maybe going after him only because he was president. Ironic. I want to get into um, some of the actions he took as president. Uh, but first, for, for people that don't know that sort of deep history of Trump and his family, what, what for you, if you're trying to explain the criminal behavior of Trump, uh, even before he's president, what do you sort of point towards? I mean, there's all this stuff with the mob and, and concrete and all that stuff. Uh, but, but what do you usually point towards when you're trying to make people understand his behavior before the presidency? Um, Are there any specific cases that you, you think of when dealing with Trump? No, because, I mean, to, I mean, it's all about deception. It's all about deceit. It's all about the con. It's all about, um, you know, how he can contextualize what he's doing. Um, and so there's no particular case. I mean, he's had 4,000 law cases, but there are dozens that, you know, that suggest how, 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 he, how he operates. I mean, but I mean, as far as why he does what he does, um, he just has a very Hobbesian view of the world. Everybody's out to screw everybody. Everybody takes advantage from everybody. That's what his father thought. That's what he thinks. Um, he sounds like a bit of a social Darwinist. Yeah, he, he is. He is. You know, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. Um, um, yeah, I mean, but you know, again, I mean, he, he's unique because of his, his, his life history and his exposure. Well, he comes from privilege, essentially. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He comes from privilege. He comes from wealth. He comes from business. And what he inherited was already a business that was engaged in scams, defrauding the government, uh, whether it was involving a project, whether it was skimming off a, a building, whether it was um, you know, discriminating against tenants in a building, which becomes the first case uh, where Donald takes the stage um, over what was one of the largest discrimination suits in housing history in this country. They lost, but they weren't really charged with anything. And as Donald did then, he ends up spinning it that he won. And that's what he can do. Whether he's losing or winning, he's always winning. So with regards to his presidency, uh, there's a lot that happened during his presidency that I don't even think people talk enough about. Like, uh, you know, I felt like the EPA changed significantly under him. I was looking at the presidential pardons he made. It seems, uh, based on what we know, that there were pay to play. Uh, sort of, you know, Giuliani was telling people like the ex-CIA agent, John Kiriaki, well, how much do you want for a pardon? You know, like, you know he, he's, you know, Rudy Giuliani is selling pardons for Trump, according to uh, various people like Kiriaki and whatnot. So, the going rate was fifty thousand dollars. There were there were there were group group pardons that 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 people sold, purchased for less. The highest one was seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Now these are are they written with checks to Donald? No, they're paid to a pack. They're paid to a, a lobbyist who in turn sees that it happens, and then Donald gets the money. So it's very it's very pay to play. 
Yeah. It's pay to play, but also, I mean, everybody, you know, I look at the pardonings of of people going back to McKinley and I examine the patterns of of all the presidents between uh, McKinley and, 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 and Donald, while everyone there managed to pardon a powerful criminal or two, Donald primarily punished, uh, uh, pardoned powerful individuals or lobbying type individual connections. Um, And of course, unlike any other person, he pardoned his co-conspirators in crime. And that was okay. And, you know, we weren't bothered by that. I mean, that's just an amazing chutzpah, as they say. A lot of a lot of nerve there. So then I, I also mentioned the EPA. Could you talk a little bit about what the Trump presidency did to various uh, federal agencies and, you know, the, the role of lobbying in all of this? Okay. If we talk about the EPA, we talk about health and human services. We talk about the Consumer Financial Protection uh, Bureau. To me, those are the three agencies or or. Uh, governmental uh, bureaucracies that collectively are responsible for yours and my health, safety, and well-being. Each of those agencies became a casualty of Trumpian corruption, anti-environmentalism, anti-science, and anti-regulation. In short, these agencies were dismantled or impeded as best as they could Um, So frameworks for safeguarding water, air, and public health, they were rolled back. Um, If you look at the appointments to these offices, uh, to the EPA, these were anti-science folks. They were anti-regulation folks. Um, The Consumer Protection Agency, uh, you know, really took a beating. Uh, when Mulvaney became the acting head of that agency for two years, when he had called the creation of that aid, and this is why he's head of the office in uh, management and budget. He's doing a twofer job while he's doing that. He's also taking care of Consumer Financial Protection Agency. When he and his subsequent people in that office were really working for payday lenders, for example, and they were facilitating those individuals uh, and they were representing those individuals. Um, does that give you a little bit of what we're talking about? No, definitely, definitely. It sounds like, uh, you know, it, it's interesting because I think we've had politicians that are very cynical um, or, or maybe even greedy, but it, it sounds like Trump is almost like a whole different animal, Um so to speak. Could you delve into that? Like, what, what do you you think this has opened uh, a lot of uh, Pandora's boxes, I guess, so to speak? Because it seems like uh, Trump may have done things like you mentioned the pardons. Uh, There's always been presidents that have pardoned powerful figures that may have been criminal in their their nature. But, uh, you know, it sounds like he went the extra mile. Do you think all of this opens a a Pandora's box uh, for the future? No, I, I, I mean, I don't. I mean, I'm concerned about, you know, the anti-democracy that's going on. I'm concerned about the next election, the Electoral College. I'm concerned about um, a lot of things that are structurally more important than Donald Trump. I don't think other people would be able to pull off what he's he's done. And I think we'll be protective and defensive about those things happening as we go forward. Um, So I don't think that he's necessarily opened up a Pandora's box. I think he just was able to exploit all of those interests and anti-interests in a very uh, creative way. Um, Thanks to, well, I, 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 I mean, I credit part of Trump's success to uh, Bannon, to Miller, both Stevens to me, 
Stephen Miller, Stephen Bannon, they, um, to me, were the brains behind Trump. And uh, another person who I give a lot of credit for was President 2.0, who a lot of people make fun of and don't think has many skills. And I'm talking about his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Kushner was... Jared, yeah, Jared Kushner was a significant player in in all that Trump was doing. The only one, those were the three people that Trump actually trusted. It's really interesting because I think that the element of Jared Kushner actually gets left out way too often. I know another of the books that you reference is uh, Vicki Ward's book, Kushner Incorporated. Uh, I feel like Kushner really gets left out of the picture in a lot of cases. People focus uh, on Bannon and Miller, as they should. You know, I've covered Bannon and Miller, but I think the Kushner aspect gets left out a lot. Yeah, no, he, he does. I mean, he gets a little less text than Bannon and Miller from me, but I give the three of them a, a, a lot of a lot of space. I, I guess what I meant, I shouldn't have said Pandora's box, but I guess, what do you think the problems are going forward? Like, if we we may not have another Trump, but what do you think the challenges we face going forward then are? Well, a lot of it has to do with the problems that we were not addressing in the first place. A lot of people ask me with respect to corporate crime, how come we don't use RICO to go after corporate offenders? Because we have a lame legal notion that says a corporation is a person and not an organization. Corporate personhood. A corp- yeah, yeah. It, it's, a, it's a person. It, it's not an organization. So we think of corporations as people. We don't think of them as organizations. So we need to think of corporations not as people, but as organizations. Um, that's one thing. Citizens United. That's another thing. You know, we have a pay-to-play um, operation here in the United States. We have a terrible electoral system that dates back to slavery that is not representative of anything. Ergo, 40 million more Democratic votes for presidency in the last uh, three decades, and yet you have the minority getting domination in the Supreme Court and their legislation, totally anti-democratic. So what do we need to do? We need to get rid of the Electoral College. We need to get rid of shell um, companies. We need to get rid of Citizens United. We need to address a corporation as the person. And then, you know, we need to join the 21st century and the rest of the developed world by having a real healthcare system and all the things that the so-called progressives are pursuing that the rest of the world has had in place for, you know, four decades. So uh, going back uh, to something else you had mentioned, you mentioned uh, Trump and money laundering, specifically in relation to Deutsche Bank. I know you you cover that in the book, and we don't have to get into it too deeply because I know we only have maybe uh, 10 minutes here. But uh, could you talk a little bit about Deutsche Bank and Trump a little bit more for people that are unfamiliar with that story? Right. Okay. Um, first, you know, some facts about Deutsche Bank. According to the U.S. Treasury's Financial Crime Enforcement Network, more than half of all the suspicious transactions involving major banks in the world belong to Deutsche Bank. Between 1999 and 2017, more than $1.3 trillion of suspicious transactions flowed through Deutsche Bank, much of which involved the laundering of stolen or dirty money, including accusations that the bank laundered more than $20 billion out of Russia since the early 2000s, for which in 2017, Deutsche Bank paid $600 $600 million in fines. 
Okay. Yeah, $20 billion, $600,000 fine. That's not bad. That's good business. But so that's Deutsche Bank. And Deutsche Bank has been in Eastern markets. It's been in uh, African markets. It's been all around the world for decades doing this kind of transactions. Um, so Donald, you know, conventionally had loans until he had a series of bankruptcies uh, in the casino industry, and he could no longer find anyone to subsidize him. So he had to either look to dirty money, which he laundered through people buying his properties. He also got you know, uh, and he also got loans from Deutsche Bank. And what I find the most interesting uh, is that Deutsche Bank has sued him for, you know, non-payment. He's sued Deutsche Bank. They've sued each other. Um, and meanwhile, they continue to do business together, post those lawsuits all the way up to January 6th, when finally Deutsche Bank said, no more. We're not going to work with him any longer. What did the two of them have on each other? They both knew that each other was laundering money. They were, you know, doing it together. So they had that on each other and they were doing that together. Last few things here. I, I wanted to come back to Jared Kushner and maybe, uh, you know, people like Eric Trump, uh, Donald Trump Jr. And, and Ivanka Trump. How do they fit into uh, Donald Trump's world, and I guess, do, do they end up uh, becoming involved in his activities in a way? Like, is uh, is sort of Trump criminality bigger than Trump himself? Um, well, 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 sure. As I said, Trump passed a lot of his tricks of the trade, a lot of his schemes and racketeering by moving the money from one generation to the next generation so that they could avoid taxes and that he could, you know, in both directions. So Trump inherited a lot of money, as did his siblings from his father. And in turn, Trump is doing the same thing with his money in terms of his children. He's moving it to them just as his father moved it to him so you can keep it from the government, um, if that makes sense. Uh, now, Jared is, uh, is a bit different. Jared has his own background and history of wealth and connections that couple, you know, that's why there's another book. Um, sorry about that. Here's the other book. American oligarchs, the Kushners, the Trumps, and the marriage of money and power. Do you know okay, this? I haven't book? heard of that one. Yeah. Andrea oh, yeah, Bernstein. No, that's better than the one you cited. <laughs> this, this is the one that brings it all together. I mean, um, Jared is a very talented and, you know, he's very sharp. He's very smart. I mean, what people don't know about Jared, he and his brother have a company today, which is developing platforms for for real estate investment globally guess who's part of the investors in their operation goldman sachs now when i tell you who else um uh soros george soros so behind this venture going on as you and i speak is goldman sachs and soros and if i would look at you know donald he appointed a lot of hacks in his government, people who knew absolutely nothing. But he imported and, and, and brought in economists who were first-rate thieves. What was you said? First-rate what? Thieves, thieves. They all <laughs> had a background in shell companies. All of them. Um, whether we're talking about. Um, Gary Cohn, Chief Economic Advisor, Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State, Stephen Mnuchin, Secretary of Treasury, uh, Randall Quarles, Board of Governors, Federal Reserve. Their backgrounds are all running shell companies on their way to the top of their fields. They were all experts in shell companies. This is the thing that has always really gotten to me because I, I think that, uh, you know, Trump would talk this game about, uh, you know, we, we need to 
to take back power from the elites. Uh, but, you know, he, he's actually himself just enriching himself and, uh, you know, anyone else with, with a modicum of power uh, and everyone else gets left behind. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's no, the greatest no, I, trick the devil ever pulled. <laughs> I, I agree with you. I agree with you. So uh, is there anything you want to add to that? Because I, I think it, it bothers me that he's been able to take so many people in, even though everything he does is actually the the opposite of, uh, you know, helping the common man. Right. No, no. I mean, that that's the beauty. I mean, that's the magistry of, of Donald. That's the genius of Donald Trump. And, you know, people don't want to say that he's a genius. But he is. I mean, how can you basically rob somebody and tell them that you're helping them? He gets away with it. I mean, what is his base getting from Donald? Nothing, nothing whatsoever, except they get to feel good because they get to, you know, go after somebody else. So the last thing I wanted to touch upon, because we're coming up against the hour and sure. go a minute or two over, but I guess. In closing here, what do you hope that my listeners uh, get out of the book if they happen to pick her up? Or what do you hope they get out of even just this specific conversation? Because I felt like uh, one thing that I hope listeners get out of this is that, you know, the, the problem isn't necessarily just Trump. Not everything is, uh, you know, uh, Trump's going to come back in 2024 or 2028 or 20. It, it, the problem isn't just this single man. There's There's these other structural forces at work. And if we don't deal with them, you know, and we only focus on on Trump as just this singular force of nature phenomenon, uh, we're really missing the forest for the trees in some ways. Right. I mean, I, I don't say it that way, but that's exactly, you know, what I'm uh, attempting to do. I'm using Trump as a vehicle for exposing the crimes of the powerful and the inadequacies of our system for addressing the crimes of the powerful. Because there, it sounds like what's really at work is there's all these loopholes uh, that the powerful can exploit. Right. But, I mean, it's more than, than playing the loopholes. It's the laws themselves that don't, that really need, you know, changing or using. I mean, there's a lot of law that you could use, but we're not using that law. So that leads into a, a final interesting question. I, this is probably above the pay grade of this conversation, but I know a lot of people that I think if you start talking about these things, for instance, criminology or, or, or sociology, uh, things of that nature, they don't always provide easy answers, right? It's not as easy as uh, vote this way or vote that way. You really have to dig down into what are the problems allowing this sort of uh, injustice in society to reproduce. So what do you think the main things people should be thinking about if they want to see positive uh, social change in the world we live in? Because it's not going to be easy getting that. And I think, well, it's not going to be getting easy to get any of this because the problem is not something that we're unaware of. You know, we, we, we often talk about economic inequality and the fact that it's been growing and accumulating and that the middle class is disappearing uh, and that we're now experiencing some downward mobility. Um, we're, we're aware of that. Um, and we talk about it all the time. But when you give a $1.3 trillion, you know, uh, give back to the rich, you're doing precisely the opposite. We've done that three or four times, or the Republicans have done that three or four times. It's about the only thing that they've ever really done is give money back to the rich. So the, you know, if you want a simple answer, the simple answer is why don't we return to the tax system that we had in the 1950s when corporations paid 80 or 90%? Why don't we get away with capital gains? Why don't we, you know, put a, you know, why don't we address you know, sustainable capitalism, you know, even if we just talked about sustainable capitalism locally or globally, you would have to alter what we do. So in a sense, it's, it's capitalist accumulation and reproduction that needs to be altered as Elizabeth would tell you, or as Bernie would tell you, or as anyone on the Hill would tell you who is about to be reasonable about things. 
Well, Greg, I want to thank you for coming on Parallaxes. I really enjoyed Criminology on Trump, and I hope that uh, people will listen to this conversation and pick it up. Uh, any parting words or let my listeners know how they can keep up with your work? Um, you can go to gregberrick.com or you can just Google me. I mean, I see the world of Google has now categorized articles that I've written on Trump and you can easily access them. Um, uh, it's not hard. If you Google me, there's like 20 books. I mean, if I wanted to push people, I would push them in addition to criminology on Trump to read theft of a nation. Wall Street looting and federal regulatory colluding or unchecked corporate power, why the crimes of multinational corporations are routinized away and what we can do about it. I, I also just wanted to ask here, do you think this is bigger than um, just, is it a bipartisan issue, the, the power of, of corporations in America? Yes. One word, yes, it's a bipartisan issue. That's what I wanted to say when I suggested that elite Republicans and elite Democrats are both knee deep in shell companies. Well, thank you again, Greg Barrick, for coming on Parallax Views. Everyone check out the book, Criminology on Trump. Thank you very much, JG, for having me today. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Greg Barrick, author of Criminology on Trump. As always, if you support the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. I should have a new exclusive interview up with former FBI agent within the CIA's Bin Laden unit, Mark Rosini, on Sunday or Monday. So if you're a subscriber at the $5 tier or above, check that out. And as always, on the Patreon website, you can find all the different ways you can help to financially support the show. So all that information is available on the website. So please consider supporting me there. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say, don't do it. Just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.